Thanks for listening to the Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Medical School. Today on Voices of UMass Med, promising research into the progression of Parkinson's disease, a disorder of the nervous system that can result in tremors and other challenges with movement. We're joined by Dr. Kara Smith. She's an assistant professor of neurology and a movement disorder specialist who has a special interest in helping patients with Parkinson's disease. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for making time to talk with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So let's set the scene first. Each year in the United States, uh, about 50,000 people are newly diagnosed with Parkinson's and the Parkinson's Foundation estimates that soon about a million Americans will be living with PD, um, but the disease doesn't take the same shape in every patient. Isn't that right? That's right. It's actually fascinating to me because it's one of the most variable and heterogeneous conditions we see in neurology. There is a long laundry list of possible symptoms, and a patient can have a certain few, and then a patient sitting next to them in the waiting room could have totally different symptoms. In addition, the rate of progression is very variable from one person to the next. So some people have a much more mild and slow, benign sort of a course, and unfortunately others have much more rapid deterioration. And I think a big part of their research is trying to figure out predictors of how to tell people what is going to be in their future with their Parkinson's. Right. Why does one person get an aggressive form and another a mild? Exactly. So as a clinician who's diagnosing people, making this diagnosis, what are some of the signs that you look for that are telltale signs of PD? Well, interestingly, a lot of the signs that are developing in Parkinson's are very subtle and indolent for many years. And so there is actually a relatively newly described phenomenon called prodromal Parkinson's, which means in the years before you officially get diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, the brain changes that will inevitably cause your Parkinson's are already underway. And this can cause constipation, loss of sense of smell, a subtle change in your movements or your mood or your thinking abilities, or a sleep disorder called REM behavior disorder. And all of those things are risk factors or really markers that Parkinson's may have been developing. Um, when you finally arrive at a doctor's office, some of the really common things we see early on would be a tremor in one hand that's at rest. Sometimes that's called the pill rolling tremor because of the appearance of the finger movements during the tremor. The pill rolling? Pill rolling. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's like if you have a pill between your fingers and oh. you're rolling it back and forth. Or just overall slowing down of movements, having a stooped over posture, making strides that are smaller so that you develop a shuffling appearance when you walk, um, decreases in dexterity and fine motor coordination are all part of the features that usually bring patients into the office. Yeah, somebody who's having a hard time grasping small objects or buttoning their shirt or tying their shoes, that kind of thing. Yep, exactly. So I want to go back. You said the, that uh, pre-diagnosis uh, prodromal Parkinson's. Talk about that a little bit. How was that discovered? And like, is that something that people should sort of have on their minds if they're listening to this and maybe be on the lookout for people uh, who they love? Well, there's been so much emphasis on discovering this very earliest phase of Parkinson's because we know that by the time a person arrives at diagnosis, so for instance, say they develop a tremor, come into a neurologist's office and receive the diagnosis of Parkinson's, we know based on neuroanatomy studies that they've already had significant brain changes 
and we need to actually be able to pick up on the earliest stages of those brain changes to have any chance of halting them in their tracks to really prevent the Parkinson's from ever fully developing and also to slow disease progression. So in terms of curative and really disease modifying therapies, um, there's been a lot of emphasis in the research world to developing you know, the earliest possible phase of the condition, and that's where this prodromal Parkinson's phase came about. Um, and so it's really something these days at this current time that's thought of as a research diagnosis. It's not specifically relevant to somebody who gets that diagnosis because at this point, unfortunately, we don't have therapies that are approved to prevent, stop, or cure Parkinson's. But it will be increasingly important to know how to find those people once those therapies become available. Yeah, so that would be really a fascinating course to pursue in the future. So, is there? So you mentioned uh, that by the time of diagnosis, a person's brain has already undergone usually significant changes. What are those changes, and do they show up on a scan of any type? Yeah. So the main area that we think about in Parkinson's, in terms of brain anatomy is called um, the substantia nigra. So that's a tiny area kind of in the bottom of the brain stem. In that area, you have brain cells or neurons that have dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter or a brain chemical that you need to make normal movements. So if you don't have enough dopamine, your movements will be too slow, too small, and you'll have tremors sometimes. And that's really where the hallmark features of Parkinson's disease come from, is this deficit of dopamine brain cells or neurons in the substantia nigra. And so based on autopsy studies, we know that by the time a person has early stage Parkinson's, like right around the time they're diagnosed, they could have lost up to 50% of their dopaminergic neurons by that point in time because your brain has such amazing capacity to compensate. So only until that point where you've really lost up to half your neurons or maybe more, you are appearing normal. And only then do you start to really develop like the tremor or the shuffling or whatever symptoms that you are going to get. Wow, that's fascinating. Do yeah. you find most people who come to you seeking either a diagnosis or some sort of guidance, have they noticed the changes in themselves or is it their loved ones around them who notice first? I think they both notice in different ways, but I do think patients are very in tune with the changes and have a lot of insight into how it's affecting their day-to-day -day lives. And then some of the changes where they don't notice as much, um, their, their loved ones do pick up on. So it's usually a combination. Combination. So of course, with a disease like this, muscles can be affected. And of course, muscles are what we use to communicate and to talk. And so Parkinson's can have an impact on the speech and the expressions and the gestures of people who are affected. So can you talk about that a little bit and sort of the uh, communication aspect of this condition? Sure, and this is sometimes an overlooked aspect of Parkinson's disease, is how much it affects somebody's communication with the outside world around them. Um, so in Parkinson's, a few th things happen at the same time. So a few different things happen to the communication abilities. One is that the patients will have a decrease in their facial expressiveness. So they'll have kind of a staring expression, they won't blink as much, their mouth won't make the typical expressions. So they can come across as kind of dull or bored or uninterested or depressed. And that makes people not want to interact with them. In addition, their voice changes. So their voice gets softer, it gets monotone. Sometimes the syllables just kind of ramble on or run together and they pause awkwardly 
all of which combines into um, a somewhat unnatural way of speaking yeah. that can be hard for people to understand. Yeah. Um, and so I think this frustrates patients and the listeners around them. And again, a lot of times the end result is that they just don't speak up. Yeah, and, and if you're talking to somebody who might have undiagnosed Parkinson's, you may notice those, but you may not quite know what they are. Right, their speech could seem slow, yeah. or there might be a delay, and you might you know, think that they, if they're at work in a mm. working environment, you know, their coworkers might think that they don't know what they're talking about. And or so then uninterested. they get very self-conscious yeah. about those gaps in their communication. You are about to embark on a five-year-long study that will look at some of these communications issues, particularly how the voice, somebody's voice might help sort of uh, determine a risk for Parkinson's. This sounds fascinating to me. I'd love for you to tell us how this idea first came about. Sure. So some of the background comes from workers around kind of the globe who have been focused on what's called acoustics in voice in Parkinson's. So acoustics is like the pitch of your voice and various elements about how the speech muscles produce the sound that is your voice. And people have noticed, researchers have noticed that they can detect changes in those acoustics in the very early stages of Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. And what I then decided to look at was that there was a more complex set of features that we could investigate to get more information about Parkinson's out of the voice. So most of the research that's been done up to this point has really looked on what's called the motor features of Parkinson's. So like the stiffness and the slowness, those are be motor features. What it hasn't really looked into would be the cognitive features. So Parkinson's does unfortunately oftentimes cause cognitive impairment and can lead to dementia. And we don't, like everything else, have good ways to predict who is going to get dementia associated with our Parkinson's disease and who is not. And since communication, in general speaking, is such a complex combination of the movement and the thought or the cognitive function, mm -hmm. my idea was that perhaps it could produce a lot of detailed information that could give um, pre prediction of both the motor and the cognitive um, sort of future of a person living with Parkinson's disease. That's fascinating. So this grant is funded by the National Institute of Deafness and Other Communication Disorders, Do I have that yes. right? And so tell us a little bit more about this. How, how many patients will you recruit? What will the study do? What will sure, you, what so the like? study will be entirely run out of UMass Medical School here, and we'll be recruiting 100 Parkinson's disease patients and then 50 healthy controls, mm -hmm. who could be relatives or friends and um, who do not have neurological diseases. And so what we'll be doing is bringing subjects in for an extensive battery of voice and language and communication tests over a few hours, and then concurrently giving them some tests of their cognitive function and their motor function so that we can understand better the correlations between the speech and the motor and the cognitive aspects of the disease. For the study that we're doing right now, it'll just be a one-time visit. Okay. And then, of course, in the future, depending on our findings, we hope to make it more of a longitudinal study. We'll then be tracking patients over time and looking for elements in their voice that could then predict future changes. Um, but at this point, we're just trying to characterize what we see because it's a very um, kind of novel area that not many researchers have, have looked into specifically the cognitive aspects of voice and speech. 
So we'll just be doing a lot of data exploration to try to figure out how we can tackle this problem. So for this part, the goal would be just to sort of compare the voice observations and data that you're gathering with the cognitive and see how the two correlate? Yes. Yeah. You're listening to Dr. Kara Smith. She's an assistant professor of neurology at UMass Medical School. So I'm curious, how did you come to specialize in movement disorders and Parkinson's disease in particular? Well, it was pretty early on in my neurology training. So as a resident, I was exploring all areas of neurology, thinking about different diseases that interested me. And I just really found that Parkinson's disease was so fascinating to me because of its neurobiology. Mm. Um, like sort of I mentioned, like this idea that it starts so much before the time of diagnosis also is a really fascinating opportunity for intervention. I also felt like in Parkinson's disease compared to other areas of neurology, research was, um, research was progressing at such a rapid pace that I felt like there would be a breakthrough in my career that would totally change patients' lives, and I wanted to be a part of that. We do know that some of the risk factors of Parkinson's, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong, are age, people over 60 are most likely. There is a hereditary component to it, although that's probably not completely well understood. Men are more likely to get Parkinson's, and then there could be some connection to toxic exposures through your lifetimes. Exactly. All? So everything you mentioned, and probably more. Yeah. So there's no one thing that causes somebody's Parkinson's. You know, patients are always looking for an answer. You know, what caused this? What one thing could I have done differently? There's nothing you can do to cause your Parkinson's. Um, so it's a complicated like culmination of a bunch of those features and then probably others we don't understand. Genetics play a partial role and we know there are a long list of risk genes that increase your risk of Parkinson's, but very rarely is it the case that one single gene caused it 100%. Um, but probably there's a genetic predisposition. Um, pesticides and other environmental exposures are well known. Um, drinking well water has been well identified to increase risk. Um, for some reason we don't fully understand, yes, being male. Um, also, smoking decreases your risk of developing Parkinson's, as does drinking coffee and caffeine. Um, so we don't recommend people smoke. Say, let's not recommend <laughs> smoking. <laughs> um, but caffeine is something we do recommend to our patients because it also helps to, seems to help when you, you know, already have Parkinson's disease. Sure. Most of the time in the clinic, we're dealing with patients who are already diagnosed. So the risk factors don't so much matter at that point, but it is interesting when they look at large population studies, the kind of you know, unexpected things that they find can maybe correlate with increased or decreased risk. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I wanna ask you about some of the help and treatments and therapies that you're able to offer patients today. Is it levodopa, is, is that still the most common medication that's available? It is, so carbidopa levodopa is the full long name, um, levodopa is the active ingredient, and that actually gets made into dopamine, so it replenishes that dopamine store, which I mentioned was diminished. Um, it was discovered you know, in the 1960s, so for decades it's been the gold standard, and we truly haven't developed anything better than that since, but we have gotten better at, I think, utilizing its power and um, managing complications of it. Yeah.
because it will get less and less effective in some patients over time. Is that right? So you have to sort of modulate it? Sure. Patients develop complications from it that can make it tricky to kind of optimize a medication schedule because their disease progresses. Less so that the medication doesn't work as well anymore, but just their brain becomes so low on dopamine levels of their own that it's harder to replenish it in a natural way using medications. So what other options do people have to try to replenish that dopamine or relieve their symptoms? So there are many other medications that enhance the dopamine brain system in one way or another. So there are many other oral medications. Um, there's also deep brain stimulation surgery, which is a therapy that's been approved um, for about 20 years and can be done to alleviate the complications associated with Parkinson's medications, alleviate Parkinson's tremor, and um, improves quality of life. Mm -hmm. And who would be a good candidate for the surgery? The surgery is really for people who are responding well to some kind of Parkinson's medications, but are developing the complications, meaning that the effect of the medications isn't consistent or that they're getting side effects from it and it's just not possible to keep them feeling well throughout the course of their day with medication schedule. And so what new therapies are on the horizon? Is there anything that's close to being clinically viable? There are a lot of things in research. Yeah. It's kind of mind-boggling how many different approaches are being studied in research, and now it's hard to know which ones are gonna be the ones that will really make it. Um, but there's a lot of promise, I think, for the alpha-synuclein immunotherapies, which are vaccines and antibodies that are aimed at removing toxic proteins that cause the dopamine brain cells to die. Um, in addition, there's a lot of research into just formulating Parkinson's medications in ways that make them more um, long-lasting and deliver more continuous therapy. So they're um, you know, relatively new is a pump that you can have an infusion of levodopa into the intestine. They're working on a subcutaneous pump. They're working on different ways to package the drug into like a pill that's 24-hour pill. So they're working on delivery devices that will enhance patients' lives as well. That's really interesting. So uh, of course, when a lot of people hear the word Parkinson's, they think of actors, Michael J. Fox, Alan Alda, these notable people who have suffered from the disease and shared that publicly, boxer Muhammad Ali. Um, Michael J. Fox uh, launched the foundation that bears his name 20 years ago, and at that time, in 1998, said he hoped there would be a cure in a decade. Mm -hmm. So clearly, you know, research is progressing, but maybe not as quickly as everyone would like. So how do you look at that? Are you encouraged by the progress, and, and do you think there will be a cure or a preventive treatment uh, in the coming decades? I'm a very optimistic person in general, so I'm very encouraged by the research that's been done over the past 20 years um, since you mentioned that he founded the Michael J. Fox Foundation. So at that point, I think people had just realized what alpha-synuclein was, which is the main protein that causes Parkinson's disease. Um, so having a lot of, I think, new knowledge about what that protein is and how it spreads and how it causes disease progression um, you know, it's relatively new information in the scheme of scientific knowledge in general. And so there is going to be, I think, a lag in terms of figuring how to fix all those problems. But it does seem like research is on the cusp, and there are a lot of, you know, very smart people investing a lot into trying to solve this. And I, you know, I really 
I hope for the sake of my patients and my future patients that you know, it's sooner rather than later. And I know it can never be too soon for somebody who's suffering for this. But I, I do see something around the corner as very plausible. And that is the hope that I try to convey to my patients in the clinic every day um, and something that I truly believe as well. Dr. Kara Smith, thank you so much for bringing us up to speed on Parkinson's disease. Thank you for your time. Thank you. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Thank you for listening. Keep up to date with everything happening at UMass Medical School by following us on Facebook at UMass Med, on Twitter at UMass Medical, and on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School.